Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would cause what Paul commanded the Romans to do to happen for us, Lord. We pray that you would enable us to respond to your mercy in Christ by offering ourselves as living sacrifices. Lord, we pray that this would entail us putting to death the deeds of the body and crucifying our sinful desires. We pray, Lord, that this would flow out of our being identified with Christ and united to him by faith, being united to him in his death, that we might live this new life that he's made possible. So, Lord, I pray that you would enable us to live out this reasonable response, this life of worship. We pray that you would keep us from being conformed to the world, but cause us to be transformed. We pray that you would cause our love to be without hypocrisy. We pray that you would convict us and inspire us by the glory of what you've called us to, by the glory of who the Lord Jesus is. We pray these things in his name. Amen. This week I listened to a podcast that Dr. Moeller did with a guy named Gary Saul Morrison. And this guy, he teaches Russian literature at the University of Northwestern. And he regularly has 500 students sign up for one class. Five, can you imagine that? 500 students in a class on Russian literature. And this guy was distinguishing. He was talking about mainly about Leo Tolstoy's novel, Anna Karenina. And he was distinguishing between romantic love and what he called prosaic love. And he was talking about the way, you know, Anna Karenina, it's a novel about an adulteress. Anna Karenina is an adulteress, and she winds up committing suicide. And he was talking about the way that, sorry for the spoiler, Nikki. I, I'm sorry. I apologize. Um, he's talking about how Tolstoy's point is not to glamorize adultery, but to show the evil of it. And, and he was talking about the way that in the novel, Tolstoy, he presents to you the actual choices that Anna Karenina is making even as she tells herself that she had no choice. He, he presents to you how she's dealing with this as though she's falling in love. It's something that's happening to her, and she has no control over, over it, when in reality, she's also hardening her heart to her husband and choosing to go this way. And, and that whole thing about falling in love... This, this guy is connecting that, and I think Tolstoy means to connect it to the way that we, we treat our sins as inevitable, as, as though it's fatalistic and it must happen and we have no control over it. And, and what Tolstoy is doing is showing that actually we do make choices that result in these things. And then on the other side, so you've got the depiction of Anna Karenina, and then you've got the depiction of some, some good relationships and in those good relationships, nothing dramatic ever happens. These people just do the ordinary thing every day. They just love one another. They listen to one another. 
They sacrifice for one another. They really, it's like they live out Christianity. They, they lay down their lives for one another. And, and he talks about how the Anna Karenina love story is this romantic and it's, and it's all-consuming and it's all this passion and it ends in a blaze of destruction. It's not a blaze of glory. It's a blaze of destruction. This other kind of love, it's not dramatic. Nothing overwhelming ever happens. Just faithful day-by-day living. And it's not poetic, it's prosaic. And yet it yields great happiness to those who give themselves to it, who make these kinds of sacrifices. And as we look today at Romans chapter 13, I would invite you, if you have a copy of the Bible, to open uh, to, the, to Romans chapter 13. If you don't have a physical copy, maybe you've got it on a device, or uh, you can also always grab one of the copies that's in the pew before you, Romans chapter 13. And we're going to be looking at the end of this chapter, verses 8 through 14. And it's really, it's really a stunning passage. It's an amazing passage that Paul writes here. In, in the context of the book of Romans, what Paul has done is he has proclaimed the gospel for eight chapters. Romans 1 through 8, he's just setting forth the, go- forth the gospel, telling us why Jesus needed to die by expositing human sinfulness in Romans 1 through 3, and then talking about how, in Romans 3, how God put Christ forward as a sacrifice of propitiation to satisfy his justice and make it so that in Romans 4, those who who believe, those who place their faith in Christ, they can actually be reckoned as righteous, even though they're not righteous. Because of what Christ has done, they can be reckoned righteous. And then he starts talking about the life that flows out of this, this transformed new life in Romans 5 through 8, this this new life of hope and, and, and of boasting even in our sufferings. And then he gets to the question of of what's going on with the nation of Israel, and he deals with that in Romans 9 through 11. And then he begins to apply the gospel to people's lives in Romans 12 through 15. And that's where we are. And Paul, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, has said, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Don't Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. And now as he fleshes out what that looks like, what it looks like not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed, we get to this passage here in chapter 13, verse 8. The last time we were in Romans, in verse 7, we saw that Paul said, pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed. And that really sets up where he goes now in verse 8 when he, when he says this, Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Now, what he's going to do in verses 8 through 10 is he's going to talk about how to fulfill the law by love. And then in verses 11 through the end of the chapter, through verse 14, he's going to talk about how we need to wake up and walk in the light. So this, this first statement here in Romans 13, 8, owe no one anything, it, it, it picks up the, the idea of pay your taxes that, that he just finished chapter 13, verse 7 with. But it's clear that he's extending this into other than monetary realms. So I don't think anybody should conclude from Romans 13, 8, that we're not allowed, let's say, to take out a loan. I think it would be excluded to default on that loan or to take out a loan that you cannot pay back. So, but Paul is not just talking about financial things here. When he says, owe no one anything except to love each other, it's almost as though he says... Don't owe anyone anything except everything. 
Because if you love each other, you'll be ready to give everything. You'll be, you'll be ready to give whatever is necessary. So owe no one anything. It's like discharge your debts, pay your dues, owe no one anything, but you do owe love for one another. It's really a remarkable demand. This is a demand that you should, you should hear me saying this, and, and you should feel what I felt when I, uh, this, this week, I, I walked to the lunch table, I think it was on Friday, I can't remember, and I was thinking about the sermon, and I thought, at lunch today, I'm going to initiate a conversation about John 15, uh, 12, and 13, that passage that, that we used as our call to worship. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but this happens to me. Um, I, I get to the lunch table, and I'm feeling the, the, the astonishing demand that this verse makes upon us. And then I'm feeling my utter inability to communicate what, what is here on the page. And all I can do is read the verse and try to ask some questions, and we didn't get anywhere near the glory of, of the verses. I mean, listen, listen to what Jesus says. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. How did he love them? Well, he washed their feet. He taught them everything they needed to know. And then he went to the cross for them. He gave everything he had for them. That's how I want you. This is my commandment. You love one another as I have loved you. And I'm, I'm sitting, I'm, I'm walking up to the lunch table thinking to myself, these people know me. <laughs> this is going to be really convicting because, because they know the times I haven't lived up. They know my selfishness. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is what Paul's talking about here in Romans 13. Owe no one anything except to love each He's not talking about that romantic, passionate thing. He's talking about that prosaic love that is constantly ready to do whatever necessary in every situation. He's talking about the kind of love that is ready to give the best to somebody in your house. As I was, as I was thinking about what this looks like, this is a dumb illustration. Um, he, yeah, that sounded familiar, didn't it? This is an illustration that, that just takes a bit of this. Recently, uh, Jill's parents gave us um, new towels for the bathroom. And so we have these old, kind of rough, uncomfortable towels, and we have these nice, new, thick, plush towels that are really nice. And you know what happens in my sinful heart? I get annoyed when I go to the, the, the closet and all the good towels have been taken by the kids. That's what happens in my heart. I get annoyed. Those rascals took the good stuff before I could get to the good stuff. But what Paul is saying here is that we need to be prepared to love one another by, by I mean, this happens too. One of the kids is in the shower. Dad, can you bring me a towel? I mean, no matter how many times I've said, you need to go get yourself a towel and then go get in the shower, right? No matter how many times that instruction has been given, they still need me to get them a towel. And I love, oh, no one anything except to love one another means give them the good towel. Don't give them the old, old nasty one and save the good one for yourself. It means, it means you treat them like you'd want them to treat you. This is what love looks like. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. 
It's this disposition of the heart that wants the best for others. And then Paul explains here in verse 8, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's a profound statement. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He's going to tell us how this works. Verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now let's just think through how this works. That commandment in verse 9, you shall not commit adultery. Well, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you don't want to take his wife. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you don't want to be false to your own spouse. So love is going to it's going to keep adultery from happening. It's like don't commit adultery is one side of the coin and love your neighbor as yourself is the other side of the coin. You shall not murder. It's obvious, isn't it? If you love that person, no matter what button they've pushed in you, you love them. You're not going to kill them. You're not going to murder them. You know, I... I think it's a relief sometimes to recognize that you can simultaneously, you know, it's like, as you experience life, new, new uh, awarenesses are happening all the time. And it's, it's a relief, isn't it, to feel this person that I find to be utterly obnoxious. <laughs> I also feel love for this person. And, and maybe you've noticed this too. I've noticed this recently I, as I was reflecting, in fact, on this passage, it struck me that there are people who sometimes strike me as just insufferably proud, and yet I know them to be remarkably humble. Have, has, has that ever happened? These contradictory things in you where I can't stand this person, but I love that person. This is normal, and I think what we need to do is we need to put to death the one side of that, and then feed the flame of the other side of that, the, the love side. Put to, bat, put to death the, the evil in our hearts, and then fan the flame of the love in our hearts. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, obviously. If you love your neighbor, you want them to enjoy the good things they have. You don't want to take those good things from them. You shall not covet. You know, covetousness, this is, you didn't act on it but you had the desire for the good things that that other person enjoys. And it's like love takes the wind out of those sails because love makes it where you recognize, well, if I want what he's got, he won't enjoy what he's got. And I love him and I want him to enjoy it. And, and that, that negative dissatisfaction and discontentment with your situation is overwhelmed with this positive, this positive benevolent disposition. I, I mean, I'm searching for words here. Your good feeling toward this person that you love. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. The, 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 the term that Paul uses here to, to describe how the commandments are summed up in this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That word is only used one other time in the New Testament, and it's in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, when Paul talks about this plan of God to, to make everything summed up in Christ. 
So God's whole plan is to sum everything up in Christ. And then he says, all these commandments summed up in, and we could put it this way, I think Paul's going to put it this way, in living the way that Jesus lived. God's whole plan is going to be summed up in Christ, Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. Your whole duty to God is summed up in loving as Christ loved. That's what we're called to. If you're here and you're visiting, you need to hear me clearly. If you're not a believer, you need to hear me very clearly. This is not possible for you. And, And if you're an unbeliever in Jesus, this is not going to be possible for you. However good a show you might put on, if you don't become a believer in Jesus, if God doesn't make you alive, if God doesn't give you the Holy Spirit so that you have a, a supernatural power to, to disinterestedly lay down your life for other people, which is what God does. God makes it so that he takes out this heart of stone that we've all got, that we were all born with, and he takes out these... these inclinations to evil. I mean, not altogether, not until we're resurrected, but he he gives you a new heart and he gives you a new spirit and he causes you to experience new life. and, And you no longer love people only to make yourself look good. You no longer love people only because there's some kind of a transaction going on and you know that if you treat them right now, you're going to get what you want from them later. Now, you're ready to lay down your life for them, for their good, because you understand what Jesus has done for you. And Christians call this conversion. And and I just want to be very clear here that um, this passage is calling people to do something that is only possible for people who have experienced new life in Jesus. And believers, don't try this on your own. Don't try this without the help of the Holy Spirit. You you won't be able to do it. You won't be able to love this way unless you are trusting and crying out to the Lord for help. We need God's help to make it so that we want to do what this passage calls us to do. If you're here and you're an unbeliever and you want this, call on the name of the Lord. Romans 10, 13, Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this process of renewal will begin in you. Paul continues here. um, Any other commandment, they're all summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Love fulfills the law. Now what Paul's going to do, having having spelled out for us in verses 8 through 10, how when we love one another, we fulfill the law, now it's like what he does is he says, I want to try to motivate you to live that way. It's as though he says, I want you to feel the urgency of the necessity of living out the fulfillment of the law by loving one another. And that's that's what he tries to do here in verses 11 through 14. So in verse 11, he says, besides this, you know the time. And, And the time that he's talking about, I think, is all the time between Christ's resurrection from the dead and ascension to heaven and his return. So where we are right now, you know the time. We're we're between the two comings. 
you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Now, what, what's he talking about here? What I want to do is I want to I read through this passage, and we're particularly looking at what is he talking about when he's talking about waking from sleep. The time has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation. Okay, so I think coming awake is experiencing salvation, but I, I don't think he's talking about conversion. He says salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So your conversion is when you first believed, and now he's talking about some salvation that's going to happen after your conversion. Verse 12, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. And, and here, here's what I would propose to you. What he means is this time until Christ returns, you can characterize it as night. And that time after Christ returns, you can, you can call that the day. And when that day comes, you'll be saved. You have been saved when you, when you believed, when you first believed. You are being saved as you walk by faith, as you, as you set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And you will be saved when Christ comes. And when he raises the dead, and when he transforms our lowly body, this, this body of death, Paul calls it in Romans 8, to be like his glorious body. We have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. So that's the salvation of the day. So what's he saying in verse 11? Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. I think what he's saying is that because the day is nearer now than when we first believed, which is always going to be true. Every day that goes by, you're closer to the return of Christ. Because the day is closer, we need to wake up and start living like we know the day. The time, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Um, what the ESV renders uh, for you to wake from sleep, you could, you could translate this, the hour has come for you to be raised. The hour has come, it's, that's, that's the, the verb used. It's a verb that, that uh, is often used in the context of resurrection. So it's like Paul is saying, look, the resurrection is drawing near. So wake up. It's time to live like you know that's coming. You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation. And, and this is talking about final salvation. The glorification of the body. The transformation of everything that you are. This is what we sang about everything. All things being made new. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. We're always getting closer to that day when Christ will come. He says in verse 13, the night is far gone. We're, we're well into this age, this final age. The day is at hand. The resurrection is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, Paul is going to go through. He's about to tell us what he means by the works of darkness and he's already, I think, told us what it means to put on the armor of light. But notice here how, as he does elsewhere, Paul says, you need to put away, put off 
this one way of acting and put on this other way of acting. So cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Notice how the armor of light goes with the day that's at hand. So it's like he's saying, you need to recognize that the resurrection is near. The new heavens and new earth are upon us. And so because of that, you need to put on this armor that, that is fitting for that resurrection age. You need, to, you need to fight to attain that age. You know, he, he says in, in Philippians, he talks about how um, he, he's ready to suffer, that by any means necessary, I may attain to a resurrection like that of Christ. Paul's ready to fight to be raised like Christ. And he's calling us to fight to be raised like Christ. Guys, we'll encourage you to do that. Friday morning, you show up, 7 a.m., and we'll fight together. We'll think together about how we can fight to live for the day of the resurrection. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness. What, what are the works of darkness? Look at verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. The day's dawning. We need to walk in accordance with the day. With the day. And everything that Paul is about to, to name here, they are all things of which people are ashamed. Everything that Paul's about to name, these are the kinds of things that people want to do in the dark. And they may, they may be okay if some people are aware of this, but they don't, want, they don't want people whose opinion they care about or people that they know would be offended by this kind of behavior. They don't want them to know about this. So these would be actions that are characterized by the darkness, and these are the kinds of things that Paul wants cast away. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Now, if you, if you think about these things, here in verse 13, these are the kinds of things that are forbidden back up in verse 9. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery. Well, that would touch on orgies and sexual immorality and sensuality. You shall not commit murder, and that would touch on quarreling. You shall not covet, that would touch on jealousy. These things are all related and so these things, I think we could say, would be the opposite of love, wouldn't they? Because whereas love seeks what's good for others, it seeks to build others up, it seeks to protect others and seeks to provide for others, all of this stuff, orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling, jealousy, all of this seeks to take from others without regard to the destruction that it does to them. It seeks to to use other people for your own sinful gratification. And so that would be characteristic of the night. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in these, these abusive, self-gratifying actions that disregard the effect in other people's lives. So Paul is, is very clear, I think. You need to live like Christ. You need to live for others. 
you, you don't live for the world. It's really kind of a restatement, isn't it, of Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, the darkness, the selfishness, the self-gratification, but be transformed, be renewed so that you can seek good for other people. Verse 14, but put on, and notice how you got the same phrase there in verse 14 that you had at the end of verse 12, where it says, put on the armor of light. And now what he says is, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, which is another way of saying, verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other. It's as though Paul is saying, you need to adopt the way of Jesus. You need to put him on as though you're going to live the way he lived. As I was contemplating uh, some way to illustrate the way that the Lord Jesus lives, uh, I think the best illustration of this is the way that mothers are with their children. And this is one of those things that I didn't even, I don't think I had any inkling of what this entailed until I watched my wife and everything that she sacrificed and, and continues to sacrifice for her children. And this is, I mean, a mother is not going to want to uh, use or abuse her child. A mother is normally not going to want to kill her child or to covet what her child has or to steal from her child. No, everything in a mother's heart is disposed for the good of the child, whatever it costs her, whatever it takes. She's ready to do what she needs to do to to look out for the welfare of that child. And, and I want to read to you this paragraph from Anna Karenina because over against this selfish, adulterous Anna, you have this, this mother who is caring for her children and that literature professor that I was quoting earlier, he says that this, this lady, her name is Darya Alexandrovna, she, this guy claims that she's actually the hero of the novel. And there's nothing extraordinary about her. She just, she loves her children. She's a, she's a faithful mother. And it's, it's, this guy's arguing that what Tolstoy is commending is this prosaic, ordinary, everyday, self-sacrificial love. Listen to this paragraph. For Darya Alexandrovna, her expectations were being fulfilled of a comfortable, if not peaceful, country life. Peaceful with six children, Darya Alexandrovna could never be. But in addition, however hard it might be for a mother to bear the fear of illnesses, the illnesses themselves, and the grief at the sight of signs of bad tendencies in her children, the children themselves were even now repaying her sorrows with small joys. These joys were so small, they passed unnoticed, like gold in sand. And in bad moments, she saw only the sorrows, only the sand. But there were good moments, too, when she saw only the joys, only the gold. And then this this guy comments, Gary Saul Morrison comments, gold in sand, that is what true happiness is like. It occurs at ordinary moments and does not call attention to itself, much as Dolly does not call attention, Darya Alexandrovna, to herself. 
This is what it looks like to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know what that looks like? Look at one of the faithful mothers in this church. And if you had a good mother yourself, think about what she sacrificed. Think about what she went through on your behalf. I mean, if you, if you know anything about childbirth, you know she went through a lot on your behalf just to get you into the world. And Paul says here, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no... What does it look like to make no provision for the flesh? It means provision. You think about the etymological um, nature of that English word. Pro means something like for and vision means you're looking forward. And, and what Paul is saying here, similar with the, with the Greek word, what Paul is saying here is you're not looking out for ways to gratify your flesh in the future. You're not, you're not planning, you're not harboring something and saying, well, I'm just going to leave open that, that doorway to my sin. And, and you're not creating loopholes where you say, well, I've closed most of the routes, but I'm going to have this one way to get there that I've got justified somehow, whereby I can indulge my sinful flesh. Paul is saying, no, make no provision for the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, which means crucify all sinful desire for excessive alcohol, for illicit sex, for this desire to quarrel. I mean, I think there are people that just like to pick fights. They, they just like to look for opportunities to quarrel with one another, for harboring your jealous feelings about good things that are going for something. No, he says you need to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. All of that stuff needs to be excluded. You, you close every window, you lock every door, you make sure that you are saying, I'm going to put on Jesus and I'm going to owe no one anyone, anything except to love one another. Uh, this verse is famous for being the verse on which St. Augustine was converted. And, and Augustine, in his confessions, he tells the story of, of why this verse was so significant in his conversion. And he talks about how he, he came to know of friends of his who had come to know Jesus, who had placed their whole hope and their future and their destiny in the hands of Jesus, and he wanted to imitate them. But then he says, he says that for him, there was like a chain around him that kept him from doing that. And, and then he, he describes this chain. He says, it was no iron chain imposed by anyone else that fettered me, but the iron of my own will. He writes, the enemy had my power of willing in his clutches, and from it he had forged a chain to bind me. The truth is, Augustine continues, that disordered lust springs from a perverted will. When lust is pandered to, a habit is formed. When habit is not checked, it hardens into compulsion. So he's saying, I had this wicked desire, and then I got in the habit of gratifying it, and then it felt like I couldn't do anything but that. And then he says, a new will had begun to emerge in me. The will to worship you disinterestedly. And then many pages later, he, he talks about how he was turning and twisting. 
He says, I was turning and twisting in my chain as I strove to tear from it, tear free from it completely. He, he writes, in my secret heart you stood by me, Lord, redoubling the lashes of fear and shame in the severity of your mercy. So the Lord is keeping him from abandoning this quest to overcome his sin by lashing him with fear and shame over his sin. He, he writes, I shrank from dying to death and living to life, for ingrained evil was more powerful in me than new grafted good. And then he talks about how these sins of his that he had cultivated and harbored for so long, he, he, he writes that he says, these things that had been my cronies of long standing still held me back, plucking softly at my garment of flesh and murmuring in my ear, do you mean to get rid of us? Shall we never be your companions again after that moment? Never, never again? And then he tells the story of how he, he had gone into this garden and, and he, was try, he was wrestling with the Lord. And he was trying to overcome the, all these sinful desires. And he, he, he writes, Suddenly I heard a voice from a house nearby, perhaps a voice of some boy or girl, I do not know, singing over and over again, pick it up and read, pick it up and read. And he, he tells us that he, he took this as a divine command to open the book and read the first passage I chanced upon. And then he tells the story of how Antony had been converted in this way. And then he says that he had put down there the book of the apostles' letters. He writes, I snatched it up and opened it and read in silence the passage on which my eyes first alighted. Not in dissipation and drunkenness, nor in debauchery and lewdness, nor in arguing and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh or the gratification of your desires. Augustine writes, I had no wish to read further, nor was there any need. No sooner had I reached the end of the verse than the light of certainty flooded my heart and all dark shades of doubt fled away. He was dealing with his, his ongoing sin and the word of God came. Make no provision for the lust to satisfy its desires. And he was converted. What a verse to be converted on. It's almost like R.C. Sproul being converted on that verse about a tree falling into the wilderness, and there it, there it lies. I mean, the Word of God is powerful. And this Word is calling us, so the negative thing it's calling for us is make no provision for the lust. The positive thing it's calling for us is stated first in verse 8. Owe no one anyone, owe no one anything except to love one another. So I would say the, the passage really begins with love and ends with love. Because putting on Christ and making no provision for those deeds of the flesh, that's what love looks like. And then the, the commandments, the prohibitions in verse 9, they match the things in verse 13. And then the fulfillment of the law by love in verse 10 matches the putting on of the armor of light in verse 12. Um, another thing that struck me as I was preparing for this sermon is uh, this, this painting that I read about. This painting is called Death and the Miser. And in this painting, Hieronymus Bosch depicts a dying man 
Now think about this. A dying man who must choose between the light of Christ and the temptation of earthly riches. That's the choice. The light of Christ or the temptation of earthly riches. This guy's dying. He's going to be dead in seconds. What will the earthly riches do for him? Nothing. What will Christ do for him? Everything. You know, that's the choice that confronts every one of us. We're dying men. Our life here is going to be over. It's going to be like two blinks. And we're going to be at the end. And we're choosing in this painting, Christ is up, up above this man and light is radiating down to this man from Christ. Meanwhile, he's being, he's being offered these earthly riches and these demons are, are trying to ensnare him and entrap him with these things that are going to be useless, useless to him in seconds. And at the middle of this passage, in the center of the whole thing, is this talk about waking up from sleep. The time has come to be raised. It's a glorious passage. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that if there are those here who don't know what it is to to love others, I pray, Lord, that they would hear this news that the Lord Jesus laid down his life for them And I pray that they would know in their souls that no one has ever loved them the way that the Lord Jesus has. And I pray that they would be ready to give their lives to him, to trust him with their future, to place their hope of salvation in Jesus and what he's accomplished. Lord, I pray that you would convert people here in this service this morning. And Lord, for those of us who know you, who have been converted God, I pray that you would impress upon us how how the day has come and salvation is at hand. And Lord, I pray that it would be like the choice between earthly riches for a man who has only a few breaths to breathe. The choice between that and, and resurrection to glory. Lord, I pray that you would make the choice so obvious for us, so obvious that when we hear these these words, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, we know it's right. And Lord, I pray that you would remind us, cause us to be those who hide the word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Cause us to be those who rehearse these things to ourselves over and over and over again so that you are more prominent in our thinking than all the things that used to tempt us. And Lord, help us to lock arms with one another here, to pursue holiness together. Lord, help us to feel the fact that salvation is near at hand, the day is drawing nigh, And the time is short. And Lord, cause us to feel an evangelistic urgency, I pray. Cause us to be be mindful of the way that we can lay down our lives for people who are half dead on the road by building a relationship with them, by taking a few extra seconds to listen to them. Lord, make us good friends. Good friends, so that when we say to someone, would you read the Bible with me? Would you come to church with me? They're ready to do it because we know that we, 
they know that we care about them. Lord, I pray that you'd make us evangelistically fruitful. We pray that everyone would know that we are disciples of Jesus because of the way that we love each other. Lord, we commit ourselves to you for the cause of your great name, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.